Hi everyone, welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host Fiona Winch and today I have a very special guest, my mother. My mom is a wealth of knowledge and it only occurred to me relatively recently um, that I would not automatically grow up and just have the knowledge she has. Especially about history, she knows so much about history and I don't know, I guess uh, it was an earth-shattering reality check when I realized that if I wanted to um, know all of these things too, I kind of had to pay attention. So I really wanted to bring her on the show and have her share all of her knowledge with you. Francesca Winch grew up in northern New Jersey in a small town about 30 miles west of Manhattan. She went all through Catholic school and moved to D.C. for college, where she majored in English at Trinity College. After spending a formative junior year in England, she finished school and stayed in D.C. after graduation. She then received her master's in secondary English from William & Mary and taught sophomore and senior high school English for 36 years. She retired in May of 2020 due to the pandemic and was kind enough to talk with me about how she witnessed education and teenagers change over the years and shared the proven impact literature can have on shaping our understanding of the world around us. And to her credit, um, the proven impact of an incredible teacher. Um, I do want to insert a small trigger warning for a brief story mentioned towards the end of the episode. And with that said, my mom's journey is another one that sounds relatively straightforward, but it wasn't. There's a lot we wanted to cover, so thank you for listening and enjoy. I hadn't initially planned to start with this, but because we watched The Social Dilemma last night, I um, I want to start there. Oh, it's going to um, be a curveball, why don't <laughs> Okay, for anyone that doesn't know, The Social Dilemma is this documentary on Netflix that's basically a bunch of um, Silicon Valley former tech executives talking about the problems with social media and the lack of moral code um, in the algorithms and how it's becoming addictive, especially for younger generations. So the reason I bring it up is because, you know, for a while I've wanted to know how um, you've watched education change over the years and how your students have changed over the years Um, but especially with the presence of cell phones and computers how do you think that it's shaping the way that these kids learn now okay so are we going to tell people that I'm your mother yeah of course okay (laughs) and and also I taught for 36 years so there's a wide range I was gonna preface oh you're gonna add on to this so All right, so um, you're asking me how the students have changed and how education has changed. Yes. There's so many more pressures on kids today than there were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, And there's so so many more distractions and there's so many more ways kids can get themselves in trouble. I feel like I'm sort of the the body of an octopus here and there's so many tentacles and so many ways I can go to and directions I can go in to answer this question well um, okay okay so, so what, wait also you know I prepared for this but I knew that there were a lot of tangents we could take so I, well these whatever. are tangents these okay. are just di- different directions to answer that question okay. because uh, how 
how kids have changed and how the system has changed, uh, those are, are inextricable um, sort of components to modern life um, for kids. So in relationship to what we saw last night um, in the documentary, cell phones. Okay, so kids, as you know, kids spend a whole lot of time on their cell phones and as a result um, have shorter attention spans because they're not accustomed to reading longer narratives and retaining information. So if something happens on page five that's significant to the storyline but, but doesn't become an issue until page 25 or 35, by the time they get to 25 or 35, they may not even remember what happened on page five because they're accustomed to reading shorter, shorter bursts and not retaining information and not having really the attention span to retain information. For instance, years ago, I used to teach Crime and Punishment, um, which is by Dostoevsky, which you, as you know, is a very long text. And it wasn't a problem. I, I would hesitate um, to attempt that now, I think. So there's an attention span issue that ties in with cell phones, I think, and with social media, I think. And I see it in myself. I'm not just, you know, casting stones. I see it in myself. Um, because as we saw last night in the documentary, it's addictive. And I see that in myself, too. So that's one thing. Another thing is, to tie into the documentary we saw last night, kids are more stressed. And I think they're more stressed for a number of reasons. There are more kids on anti-anxiety meds. There are more kids that are suffering through depression. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is the, the constant desire to compare oneself with what one sees on you know, Facebook or Instagram or reads about on Twitter or whatever. Um, and, and so that's happening at a younger and younger age and, and cyberbullying is happening. Um, but then on top of that, and this does not connect necessarily with what we saw last night in the documentary, more and more kids, at least where I taught in Northern Virginia are being pushed into AP courses and more and more AP courses. And they're moving AP courses down into a younger and younger age. And, so now we have AP courses at the ninth grade level in some school systems. Okay, so there are a few comments I want to make about this. One, the attention span. I don't even know if you remember this, but my senior year of college, I did a whole. I was in that uh, public speaking class, and um, I ended up doing a speech about instant gratification and attention spans because at the time I was in a a play that was three hours long that kids were required to go to and then would just, you know, leave in the intermission, which I understand, you know, it, it wasn't that fun of a show, but also even in the first act would like be on their cell phones, like in the audience and just, I don't know how that is affecting um, theater and entertainment because, you know, most of us now consume Netflix where we have everything available to binge and can pause and and have another screen on the side. And then the second thing I wanted to comment on was the the AP thing. So I'm I'm, I'm jumping around here like this isn't even <laughs> in my notes. And I wanna I do want to get back and ask you about how you got into all of this, but 
I have found since graduating that it surprised me that no one ever talked about trade school or like, you know, degrees or programs that you can do or just paths you can take that are perfectly acceptable. But um, I remember asking you a while ago and you said that you weren't even allowed to discuss that at your high school. Um, well, we, I, I don't think allowed is the right word. I think it was, it's, it was and is discouraged because, well, okay. Um, I do want to talk for a sec about this AP thing. Well, more than a sec. Because obviously, um, like, for, we both, like, higher education, you know, okay, well, is let great. Me, but. Right. Let me explain this. For, for people that are listening who may not be familiar with this, AP stands for Advanced Placement. And Advanced Placement courses are courses that are purportedly at the college level of instruction that are being offered to high school students. And at the end of the course, be it AP English, which is divided into AP Language and AP Lit, um, typically taught at 11th and 12th grade, or you know AP Physics, or any of the AP curriculum, AP, AP Push, which is AP US History, mm-hmm. AP European History, whatever. AP Psych. AP Psych, there are a number of them. Um, at the end of the course, typically in May, there are AP exams, mm-hmm. and the AP exams are, much like the SATs, are graded by the college board. And based on your score on the AP exam, and based on the college to which you go, you may or may not get credit for a comparable college course, and therefore be required to take fewer, uh, you know, gen ed courses maybe, or even, you might even get credit in your major. Right, You, you basically test out. And so parents see it as a money saver, which it certainly can be, Um, in that students uh, who do very well on the AP exams could conceivably finish college in two or three years because they rack up so many AP credits at the high school level. Um, the uh, The other selling point for students taking AP courses is that since it is supposed to be at the college level of instruction, the students are challenged more than they might be in a non-AP course, and the theory is that that they rise to the challenge and uh, are exposed to higher level thinking and also have classmates in that classroom that are also um, interested in being challenged, and the discussion is a higher level discussion and the the work uh, required is a higher level of work. In theory. In theory. This is all in theory, of course. This is all in theory. But the reality of the situation is that it's a mixed bag, and uh, in the Washington, D.C. area where we live, there is a column in the Washington Post, a columnist named Jay Matthews, who ranks schools in the whole country, actually, I think at this point, but started in the Washington, D.C. area, um, and gives them a quality ranking based on how many students take how many AP classes. Not he, now, he has no access to the actual grades the students get, either in the class or on the AP exam. Um, it's just enrollment. And he contacts the schools every year and finds out how many AP courses are being offered by the school and then how many students are taking those courses in the school um, in relationship to Is the... Is this public and private schools or just public schools? I think he does private too now. I think he started with public, but he does private too now. And uh, Although I think they're in a different category. Okay. Um, although I'm not sure of that. Okay, so anybody listening to this, double check. I'm not okay. sure of that. Okay. Um, but in any case, he contacts the schools and he finds out, you know, uh, this relationship between the number of courses offered, the number of students taking it, the courses, 
and, and the number of courses they take that are on the AP level and then how many students are in the school as a whole. And based on these numbers, just enrollment numbers, he ranks the schools. And his theory is that the more students in a, court, in a school that take more AP exams, the more challenging the school is. And so he ranks the schools. And then the, the, the results are published in the Washington Post every year. Now, the reality is this drives real estate values. Because when people buy homes, they look at the success rate of the local public school system, obviously, especially if they have children. And so this, this push is really an economic push. This is so weird because I don't even feel like we're talking about education anymore. Oh, Oh, we are. And so there's an economic push in any given region, really, that's aware, at least that's aware of this. And boy, believe you me, Northern Virginia is and Montgomery County is, to have more and more kids take AP exams because it jacks up the real estate values in that school district. So. That's crazy. So, wait, 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 let me finish. (laughs) So, consequently, one can have in one's AP course a student who is reading like at eighth grade level but is taking, has signed up for a college level course because many school systems now, and of course I'm speaking only of the ones for which I'm familiar, so this may not be the case across the whole country, but I have read that it's a push across the country, no longer require um, any kind of prior... Prerequisite. uh, Any kind of prerequisites that require prior grades at a certain level in order to move into that course or teacher recommendation. In other words, it's open door policy. So anybody who wants to take, say, you know, AP Physics can take AP Physics, even if that person has not been very successful academically before in science courses or whatever. But the problem becomes I feel like that I could those students get like signed off. I think you probably did, but that's a private school. Right. Um, uh, the problem is that you you wind up having students in your AP course, and I taught AP. Let me. Let me clarify this. I taught AP 12, AP uh, literature. You have students in your AP course, which I did, who are, for instance, in AP Lit, who are reading far, and this is 12th grade, reading far below grade level. I had a student who was reading, uh, at one point, an eighth grade reading level. Mm-hmm. Um, and these students still are expected to succeed in this course. They're expected to succeed, and in in the school system, which I taught, a success meant an A. I feel like this just circles back to the stress and anxiety. It's exactly right. It circles back to the stress and anxiety. Is, wait, also, so you have I more get... and more kids in more and more AP courses, some of whom were taking six AP courses at a time on anti-anxiety meds. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a recipe for... Um, success. Success. Or happiness. Right. Um, or stability. Right. Um, before, I, before I lose my thought... Isn't that also why the Amazon headquarter thing was um, was so important for Arlington? Did it? Where did they end up going? Arlington? They no, went to Arlington. They're not there yet. Okay. But yes. There, there's. I haven't followed lately how close they are to the final move, but that would bring more jobs into the area. But it also would bring more traffic. Well, I um, thought you. I thought it was significant because of the the increase in the student body. Yes, because when it brings estate. in more people, it brings in more families, and it brings in, therefore, more children, yes. Right. Um, but now you said, uh, let's talk a little bit about this trade school thing. Okay. 
Um, Arlington, where I taught, Arlington Public Schools, Arlington had a career center, has a career center, I shouldn't say had, has a career center. And when I first taught, started in Arlington 36 years ago, in my experience, many more students were taking courses like cosmetology or um, learning how, how to be an electrician. I can't think of the name of the course. Um, and courses like that. Uh, veterinary medicine, I think, was one they had. And they had like a course to become an EMT. Mm. But maybe like there's firefighter too far off. No, 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 that's not too far off. Okay. Um, but the kids t have told me over the decades that there's been more, there's been more uh, and more of a push into the AP track, um, and f you know, away from um, classes Trace. like that, which which is slightly ironic because, as you know, plumbers make more, <laughs> make more than English majors, you know, in right. college English majors or the people that major in the humanities frequently. Um, and so if you're looking for a stable like, job where you can always get a job and be paid well, um, you know, that's a pretty good gig. Um, so, but nevertheless, in my experience, we, we had, for instance, more AP courses, more so students are, on the AP level than not. Are kids like aware of this? Or... They're it's a combination. They're in the thick of it. They're like in the thick can. of it. They're too in the thick of it. But it's a combination between parents wanting to have that. And, and I mean, I'm a parent. I, I know this myself. I'm not, again, I'm not casting stones because I've seen this in myself. Um, parents wanting to have that brag point. You know, like how many courses, how many AP courses is your child taking? Oh, my child's an AP this. My child's an AP that. My child's applying to this college. My child's applying to that college. Parents talk to each other. And they talk to each other at the grocery store, and they talk to each other at the, you know, if they belong to a, any kind of a club, it's, a it's country like, club. It's a, an extension of their ego. It's an extension of their ego. And, and again, I'm not casting stones because I'm sure I've played into this myself. Um, and so there's that factor. And then the kids themselves, and I think you experienced this, because I remember at one point you wanted to take four APs, and I talked you off the ledge and made you whittle it down to three. I think it was junior year. I can't even imagine... Of like a four because your friends were would be good but in. your friends were your friends were you're like my friends are doing this my friends are doing that and I'm like well I think it's a bad idea um, and sure. so I talked you down I think to three APs junior year um, but there's some kids that take five you know but again they're also trying to juggle and the, and and again the stress level that I see is not only are they overloading on AP courses in areas they might not be interested in um, sorry I just ended a sentence of preposition. But, um, for instance, last year or the year before, I can't remember which, I asked a class of seniors in AP Lit in September. I said, listen, I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm just really, really curious. These were, there were 30 of them. I said, how many of you signed up for this course, not because you're interested in reading, not because you're interested in writing, and, and you might not even have any interest in or or intention of reading anything this year that I'm, I assign, but you want to have this on your transcript. And my school system gave a quality point to the GPA if you take an AP course, so it popped up their GPA quality so point. Did, so did ours. Okay, so how many of you did this because you wanted it on your transcript, only because you wanted it on your transcript and you wanted that quality point on your GPA? And out of 30 kids, guess how many raised their hands? Like 25. 26. Yeah. 
There were four kids in that class that wanted to be there. And frequently, and, and they were great kids. They were nice kids. I enjoyed them. But frequently they would freely admit, you know, I'm doing what I need to do to get by and get that GPA and get into the college of my choice. I mean, they only know I'm what not they... reading what, you know, I'm skimming. I'm checking out That's the cliff bold. notes. You know, like that is I just, bold to share. Well, they told me that after the fact. Right. Um, frequently, which is why I I gave in well, class they only know what's being quizzes right. um, with paper and pen, no computers, based on stuff that wasn't in the Cliff Notes, and I told them that ahead of time or Spark Notes or whatever. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I I feel for them. Okay, so having I'm not I'm not criticizing them as much as I am sympathizing, because the world was very different when I was in school, and. I'm not saying that we didn't sometimes not read the books, you know, obviously every generation of kids does that sometimes, you know, you get, you run out of time or lose interest or whatever. But I think there's way more pressure on kids now, academically. Um, I had a student last year who, no, I think this was two years ago, not that it matters, who wrote me an email because he got a B plus for a quarter grade, not a year grade, a quarter grade. He got a B plus for a quarter grade. And he wrote me an email and said, and this is exactly verbatim what he said. He said, I guess it's good that I experience failure before I go to college. I remember that. Because he had had straight A's since kindergarten, basically, or mm -hmm. since when they first start getting, giving letter grades out. He'd, he'd never had anything but A's. And I used to say to my students, look, when I was in school, an A pretty much meant you were brilliant in that subject. Mm -hmm. A B meant you did a really good job. A C meant you did what you're supposed to do. And a D meant you blew it, not so good. And an E meant disaster, or an F. In those days, it was F. But now, an A means you did what you were supposed to do. And so they expect straight A's in my school system. I'm just only speaking from well, my experience Well, it's also ridiculous here. because, like... I know that in college and thereafter, yes, people hold you accountable for things, but it's it's completely different. Like nothing is like high school. Like the I've experienced failure. Like that's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's sad. I think it's sad. Well, it's sad too. I think it's sad. And this is why we uh, in again. If somebody's listening to this from another part of the country. Um, I'm only speaking from my experience. I taught for 36 years in a very affluent suburb of Washington, D.C., in a very successful school system with great teachers and really sweet, nice kids. I loved my job. Well, they, and they I only it, know the I reality that's being presented right, to them. Right. Not, yeah. I loved my job. I loved being in the classroom with those kids. Um, I retired this year only because of the pandemic. I was planning on teaching another few years, um, but I got nervous about bringing the virus home to your father and to all of us. Um, and, and you were unhappy with the way they were handling it? Well, I was afraid that I was going to be ordered back into the classroom and I wouldn't fit any of the ADA requirements to not be, you know, to be allowed to continue teaching virtually. So, so I retired, which was an option because I had 36 years in the system. But I'm not, I'm not again, casting stones at the students or really at the system except in the larger picture. Um, right. Know. No, I think it's a it's an evaluation of how all of this is right. kind of messing right. them up. Right, right. And it's not fair to the kids. I think it's not fair to the kids. And I, I would say to them, look, um, you know, life is too short to be miserable. 
um, and I, I, I've kept I've kept in touch with many 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 over 36 years I've taught more than 5,000 students and I've kept in touch with many of them through social media after they graduate of course after they graduate and I would tell them especially seniors as I, I taught sophomores and seniors but especially seniors I would say to them look when you're choosing your path in life choose something you will actually enjoy doing because life is too short to hate your job and be miserable. And granted, yes, you have to make enough money to pay your bills. You want to make enough money to not be worried about your next paycheck. But still, try to find something that you would enjoy doing. Try to find something that would make your heart sing. Because you you don't want to hate waking but up every morning going it, to work. But I would take it a step further. Because I think that, um, yes, it's important to find what your, what your interests are and what will drive you. But also, practicality, like... You know, if someone's interested in writing, they don't know the industries that would pay them for that. You know, like they could be introduced to publishing or introduced to the industries that will actually support their interests. Do you know what yes, I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, because I feel like I graduated without a good grasp on the available industries yes, and yes, how I can yes. use my interests and skill sets yes. to, to, like, in a professional capacity. Well, this is what all of those AP courses are sucking up time from in that um, I think really juniors and seniors in high school, and especially seniors, need more of that sort of career counseling even like, in an organized fashion. I And I even think that it's a shame if, um, you know, the education system, and I, I don't think this is the case, but I think it would be a shame if the education system wasn't caught up with technologies, because I feel like a lot of these students are probably you know if they're not doing their homework they're probably playing video games and then it's like are they taking a coding class you know like how do you use that right you know realistically one thing I used to do with my sophomores I came up with this unit for my sophomores because I feel like it's a shame when you have to either choose between oh this is what I love oh but this is, but I can't make money right anything at it. it and right. it's not even that you have to like that's the other thing it's like those things can still be like hobbies and things you do when the day is done and on the weekend and it doesn't have to be a money maker but right. but you don't want to hate your job you don't want right. to hate your job yeah. and i've had students email me uh, not email uh like facebook message me or whatever back and say um you know, I, I never forgot what you said about making your heart sing, and so this is what I'm doing, and, and I love my job, and, and I think that's important. But um, one thing I did with my sophomores, a unit I came up with my sophomores, for my sophomores was I had them take a on Naviance, which is a computer, uh, oh, I don't know what you call it. It's software, I guess, for that high schools use for college applications science. and everything. No, no Naviance, it's a, it's a program. Yeah. And so they would go into Naviance and they would take this personality test. Mm -hmm. And based on the personality test, it gives them some options of careers that might interest them. And I always said, look, if you already have in mind a career that interests you and Naviance gives you a different career, you know, go with what you think is right. And so they but would also look at careers. But also you're picking your career at yeah, no, no, no. I know that. I know that. No. Yeah. Wait. I know. I yes. know what you mean. And I say putting them, it on their radar. This is just something for you to think about. This is not. You're not signing on the dotted line about anything. And so they would sort of look at that, and then then we would talk about what what kind of things you would study at higher level education, be it college, graduate, you know, graduate mm -hmm. school if necessary, 
or you know an associate's degree or trade school or whatever what you would study in order to pursue that career. See, and I didn't then, even know what an associate's degree was. Okay, but see, oh, this is very interesting because one thing I did with my sophomores was I had a list of words that I went over with them. Guess I'd never brought it home, but a list of words I went over with them where frequently sophomores in high school, especially if they haven't had any older siblings apply to college, don't know what a FAFSA is, don't know what uh, a BA versus a BS means, or what an MA means, or what a PhD means, or what an associate's degree means, or any of these terminology that we throw around, what Mm -hmm. any of that means. And so I had a whole list of words I would go over with them first, a glossary of terms for this unit, and then I would have them do this, you know, Naviance program, and then Based on that, we'd look at colleges, and I'd talk about in-state versus out-of-state, what that meant tuition-wise, and I would have that I would give them another list of words about colleges and and list the colleges that were in-state, and then say talk to your parents, see if they have an opinion whether you should go in-state or out-of-state, you know whatever. Then I would have them each choose one college that they thought they really might be interested in applying to, and mind you, they're only sophomores, and I had them do PowerPoint presentations on that college each student. And I told them what had to be on each slide. And then they shared the slides with the class. We had presentations. And they learned about a lot of different colleges and programs. And then after that, they did a research paper on a controversial issue re- within the career, their career of choice. Mm. So for instance, one year a kid wanted to be a surgeon. And so she did a, a 10-page paper on the first head transplant. Oh my God. I know. Oh, apparently, really? it's in the works, and and their 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 research paper had cool. to be. Wait, why would you? Yeah, well, they need yeah, a head. Yeah. Well, it's somebody who had a neuromuscular disease or something what? that donated his body and wanted a new body. I think he was um, so he wanted a new body. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, research. I and when we get know. off this, you check this out. Okay. Okay. So and so the the paper had to be. Good idea or bad idea? So, like, one student that wanted to well, go to the automotive did industry. Did she say bad idea? I th- this was a number of years ago. I think she said bad idea. Okay. Um, the person who wanted to do the automotive industry did uh, electric cars. Good idea or bad idea? You know, I had a kid that wanted to be a vet that did zoos. Good idea or bad See, idea? See, this is what I'm talking about is knowing the industries. Right. Okay. So, do you know that the guidance counselors told me uh, that when they got these, my kids, my sophomores as seniors, they knew a lot more about the college application process and were a lot less stressed than other kids because they'd done that unit. And so I think high schools should do something like that because oh, absolutely. The, it wasn't meant to have them choose when they were 16 what their career was. It was meant to have them think, be able to think through in a non-stressful, non-anxiety-producing way so that when the time came, they had more information. Well, also because, you know, up until that point, it all just feels like dreamy. You know, you're... Well, you don't know you what watch, you don't know. Well, yeah, but you, you also don't you know watch the movies know. about right, college. Right. You have this concept of right, what it will right. be like. You don't think of anything logistically. And then there's that whole other layer of, like, if you're privileged enough to not have to think about those things, um, it can all come... Um, as a bit of a shell shock, and then if you um, if you're in a position where you you don't have parents who went to college, or you or English is a second language, and you're working through right. all the FAFSA stuff, like that's a whole other layer to the process. That I just right, it's exactly. just it feels unfair to be set up to graduate without that guidance. Because mm-hmm. that is the that's the 
those logistical matters are so much more important. Now, people listening to this that aren't familiar with the, the school systems across the country might say, well, there are guidance counselors in the schools. Aren't there guidance counselors in the schools? Um, yes, there are guidance counselors in the schools. And each guidance counselor has hundreds and hundreds of students assigned to him or her. And the guidance counselors, sadly, are also responsible for scheduling and for any kind of issue with regards to grades mm. and with answering parent emails and parent issues and also dealing with kids that have, you know, IEPs and 504s for, uh, you know, special learning needs. And so, frankly, the guidance counselors are totally and utterly overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't even remember who my guidance counselor was, but... I do, I, it's funny because I do remember taking a college prep course sophomore year, um, and I don't know that I learned too much, but I will say that the, the schools and the industries I chose would still be ones I would choose today. So it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it's not that far off. Um, but while we're on this topic of specialized courses you taught, um, I want to take a more positive term because turn because I feel like we've been kind of um, doom. stressing out. Our I don't listeners. know. I just well, I just you know everyone's been talking about doom scrolling. Right, you know, right, right. Um, and I don't really have a phrase for that in person, but I I feel like we, we've covered a lot of the problems. Right. right. Um, but I want to talk about the positives because obviously. Well, the positives have, are the kids. Well, yeah. I mean, no one stays in a career for 36 years if they don't. No, I loved it. Love it. I did love it. And um, I never. the nice thing is I never stopped loving it. I didn't retire because I got burned out. I never felt burned out, which is I'm really glad that I retired before I felt burned out. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, it was because of the pandemic. That's it. Right. And I am sorry for that situation. Um, but, like I was saying with specialized courses... I want to talk about your world literature course and the curriculum and what inspired you to create it and how it evolved and all that good stuff. So okay. All right. Introduce so, it. Okay. So as I said before, I taught sophomores and seniors and years ago, and this was before you were born. So maybe, maybe 30 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, one of the teachers retired who had been teaching an elective course for seniors called world literature which is kind of a funny name for a course because I guess opposed to what, Martian literature? Uh, but anyway, so she had been teaching this course and so she came to me and she said, you know, do you want to take over the World Lit course? And I said, sure. And I looked at what she was teaching and it was sort of a, a combination of, of texts from different parts of the world. And this, now mind you, this was a course for seniors, uh, an English course for seniors that actually did give them a credit for senior year English. So they didn't have to take it on top of 11, uh, 12 AP or on top of 12 reg. They could just take it and get their credit for senior year English. So I looked at the, the syllabus and I decided that I wanted to teach it chronologically because I love history and I think it's really um, gives extra insight into literature to look at the time period from which the piece, you know, comes and how it impacts, how literature impacts history and how history impacts literature. So I revamped the course and I came up with a syllabus that I wound up using for like 25 years. And I actually not only had students whose siblings had taken the course, I had students whose parents had taken the course. <laughs> 
which was a little bit creepy, but lovely. So um, I started with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest piece of literature anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. It's ancient Sumerian, and it's great. If you have not read, read the Epic of Gilgamesh, do so. It's got everything in it. And in fact, if you're listening to this and you know Fiona um, and you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, have her... <laughs> ever give you my cell phone number and we can talk about it. I would love to talk to you about the Epic of Gilgamesh because I can just show you after you read it, it's very short. It's only like eight pages. Um, everything that's in it, it's just wonderful. So anyway, I'd start with the Epic of Gilgamesh and talk about ancient Mesopotamia and then we'd read parts of the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> let me say this about that. The school system had copies of the King James Version of the Bible in the book room. And as I've taught in a public school system, we were not allowed to require students to buy books. Now, I've read the Supreme Court decision. I know that there's a huge difference between teaching about religion and preaching. And I never in 25 years of teaching this course or however long it was, I never had a 30 years. I never had a bit of a problem with this. I, I never, ever had a problem with this because I would preface it by saying this is... These are pieces of literature that have impacted um, history, politics, literature, art through the ages, and it's important that you're familiar with them. You don't have to agree with them, but it's important you're familiar with them. I never had a problem. Wars. Wars. Well, politics slash yeah. wars, yes. So we read together. I, I encouraged them. I had the King James Version. I encouraged them. I said, if you have a Torah which is a Jewish text or a Bible, a Christian Bible at home. And if it's okay with your parents, make sure it's okay with your parents. And you can use that, bring it in, because we can just compare and contrast the translations, which they always enjoy doing. So we read Genesis and Exodus and talked about those stories. And I was careful in this unit not to give essay questions because that could get dicey. So instead, I just gave short answer and sort of true, false, multiple choice kind of questions like, you know, name three of the plagues and... Um, why wasn't Moses allowed into the promised land? And, you know, why did Cain explain the mark of Cain? Um, explain, uh, you know, no, the, the symbolism of the rainbow after, the, after Noah's flood. What does the rainbow symbolize? So anyway, that, those kinds of questions. So then for the New Testament, oh, we read any five Psalms, including the 23rd, my Lord is, the Lord is my shepherd, just because it's so famous. Then for the New Testament, we read, uh, either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I let them choose, and we sort of compared and contrasted the, the gospel readings and the, the Jesus story. And again, you know, I gave I didn't give essay questions. I just gave short answer or true false or multiple choice kind of questions to that, like, you know, uh, what's the no room at the inn? What does that refer to? So anyway, I did that, and then after that, we moved on. And of course, I had to do terminology for that too. I had to preface it with terminology. Mm -hmm. You know, what does Jewish mean? What does Christian mean? What does what do these terms mean? Um, and then after that, we did the Quran. Now, um, the school system did not have any copies of the Quran, and so and again, again, this is like thirty years ago. So I wrote to the Saudi embassy. And Prince Bandar was the ambassador at the time. And I wrote him a letter and I said, Dear Prince Bandar, I teach in a public school setting um, and I teach in English class. And we have copies of the King James Version of the Bible and discuss its impact on literature. Would you be willing to send a class set of Qurans 
to my high school to be used in a secular setting to discuss the impact on literature uh, the rest of the world. And within a week, we got 65 gold embossed, leather-bound Qurans at my school addressed to me in the main office. And I I got teased about that for years. Um, and But I used it. I stopped sending them home with kids because they were very big because it had... Um, it was the Yusuf Ali translation, and it had English and Arabic on each page, and then at the bottom, commentary. So it was very, very thick and very heavy. What did you do with those when you retired? Uh, yeah, that's a problem. Um, I left them in my classroom in the, in the closet, and I'm a little nervous about that because okay. I never had any problem using them, and I explained to the kids why we were using them. I explained to the parents on back-to-school night why we were using them, and um, I never had a problem, but I'm a little nervous about that because given the um, the political climate right now mm-hmm. I'm a little worried that another teacher who didn't have the experience and and know exactly how to finesse this might wind up um, getting themselves in a little bit of hot water plus the other thing about the Quran is that uh, devout Muslims believe very strongly the book itself is holy in that um, one has to be very careful where one places the book. Like you can't, you could put a Bible on the floor and your parents or your grandparents or your family may be upset because it might get dirty. But for, for a devout Muslim, the Quran itself is considered holy. And so that would be disrespectful to God to put the Quran on the floor. And so I was always very careful and I explained this to the students. And that's one of the reasons I stopped sending them home um, about where to place them in the classroom. So I've spoken to members of my department about the Qurans I left behind. Um, but I am a little nervous that somebody who might not be familiar with um, how to use them respectfully yeah. um, might wind up and, and uh, might wind up well, in, in an uncomfortable sure. position. But yeah. also, the political climate now makes it difficult. Well, don't you think that people are shying away from that kind of stuff when they probably should be teaching it yes, more? Yes, absolutely. I've I told my students, look, you know, you don't have to agree with things in order to learn about them and understand them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be teaching about Nazism and Hitler in World War II. Right. You don't have to agree. You you under, you learn what people... I used to say to students, um, sort of half-jokingly, but apparently one person at least took me up on it, I, I would say to them, uh, would somebody please go major in comparative religions and then go work for the State Department? Because we need an understanding of what people in other parts of the world and in this country believe. Right. We need to understand what people believe. So anyway, the Quran is, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, the Quran is set up differently than the Bible in that it's not historically chronological based on when the events happened. It's, it's chronological based on the, um, the, the revelations uh, or the belief when the revelations were given to Muhammad from God through the angel Gabriel. And so, for instance, Noah may be mentioned, but Noah's story isn't told until much later. Or... Um, you know, actually, right. interestingly enough, Mary is the only Mary is the only woman who's uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the only woman who's named in the whole Quran by name. Um, and the baby, the Jesus birth story is a little bit different, but Jesus is in the Quran. The birth story is in the Quran. So basically, I would have so, people sign up for a go, go to the index and sign up for something. To, I want to read everything the Quran says about Jesus, or I want to read everything the Quran says about Abraham, or I want to read everything the Quran says about Noah or Joseph. Joseph's story is all, all in one piece. And so then they would report back to the class. So we, I just did it a little bit differently. So, um, but you didn't just teach religious texts. Oh, no, no, no. This is, we're only in first quarter right now. Um, I also did the Bhagavad Gita. 
um, and the, the Bhagavad Gita for Hinduism, and we talked about Hinduism, and then Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, which granted is a novel, but for Buddhism and talked about Buddhism, and then the Tao Te Ching to talk about Taoism. Um, and so that sort of took over, for, took, that was first quarter, that was just first quarter. And uh, then... For the purpose of foundation. Exactly, right. absolutely, Belief, foundational beliefs. And illusions, because a lot of these stories are alluded to in later literature. And then second quarter, we did Sophocles' Antigone and talked about ancient Greece and literature in ancient Greece. Or, you know, actually, we talked about Aristotle's poetics, which I loved talking about. We talked about Aristotle's poetics and specifically on tragedy and how Aristotle believed, and I think this is very, very foundational to a support for the arts. Aristotle believed, and he wrote poetics in 330 BC, um, he believed that um, by exposing oneself to well-crafted tragedy, and of course in his era it would have been theater, by exposing oneself to well-crafted tragedy, one, the best tragedy evokes fear and pity in an audience. Fear is evoked through witnessing events that could happen to us, which is why it's much scarier to read Jaws or watch Jaws when you're at the beach than to read or watch Jaws when you live in Kansas and probably might never see the ocean. Um, and so the fear is, is um, evoked. evoked through something that might happen to us. Pity is evoked through misfortune uh, happening to somebody who does not deserve it. So why would one want to evoke fear and pity in an audience? Well, Aristotle went on to say that empathy. this builds empathy. Mm. Why does one want to build empathy in an audience? Because Aristotle went to say the catharsis of emotion builds empathy, and this makes a better citizen, because this is, of course, what ancient Greece was about, specifically Athens, you know, make a good citizen, make a good neighbor. So people that are, are empathetic are less likely to purposefully hurt others. We all hurt others by mistake, but people that are empathetic are less likely to purposefully hurt others. Mm -hmm. And this, Aristotle believed, was the power of theater, and by extension now we can say the power of the arts. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we talked about that extensively, and I loved doing that unit, and we read Aris uh, uh, Sophocles' Antigone, and then from there we did a leap um, to through the Middle Ages into the early Middle Ages with Beowulf. And we talked about the invasions of England and the impact of the invasions on so England. So if anyone doesn't know language. what Beowulf is, can you give a little preface? Short. Beowulf is, was written in, when it was eventually written, it was originally an oral tradition, but it was written in Old English. And Old English is not ye old shoppy. <laughs> old English is a totally different language. Many linguists think it should be called Anglo-Saxon because it's not at all um, recognizable to a reader or speaker of English. I have to admit that I did not take an old English class in college. Your Uncle Terry did, so he could read Beowulf in the original, but mm -hmm. I could not. Beowulf in the original is like quiet at Gergagum kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I invariably would have a student who would say, I can read Old English, and then I'd put it up on the overhead or, you know, pass around a copy and the, and the students say, oops, I guess not. Um, so anyway, Beowulf was uh, eventually written in Old English so in England. So are we in second quarter now? Like we're are in we? second quarter. We're oh still in second quarter. And Beowulf uh, is the it story of like a it hero. Would be like a two-part course. Oh, I love teaching this class. But don't you feel like you would get more? Sure, but you know the kids have no time in <laughs> their schedules. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so Beowulf was uh, is the story of a hero whose name was Beowulf, who fought a, uh, a monster or creature, Grendel. Um, and it was the theory is that it was brought over from Denmark by the invasions, invading forces into England um, in the early Middle Ages, and then written down probably by monks in a monastery somewhere in England. So what comes next? Some, so after Beowulf, um, we would do either La Morte Arthur, The Tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table by Mallory, and or, depending on the time frame and how many snow days we'd had, uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Did anyone, like, sign up for this class thinking it would be, like, an easy elective? Oh, no, I gave them the syllabus ahead of time. Okay. I would hand out the syllabus, and I'd say, look, if you have a sibling that took this course, same syllabus, you know? Maybe a little tweaking, but pretty much same syllabus. And so they would know ahead of time what they were signing up for. And the thing I loved about it, it was kids that liked to read. It was kids that liked to read and talk about books. Um, And then after Canterbury Tales, we would read Dante's Inferno. And after that, we do Macbeth out loud in class because I always did plays out loud in class. It's death to a play to send it home with a kid to read oh, quietly. So we always did plays out loud in class, and I loved teaching Macbeth, or as we should say, the Scottish play, um, because we all know about the curse of Macbeth, right? And actually, I had students one year, um, years and years and years ago, before you were born. I do, okay, the curse of Macbeth. I, I don't think everyone knows the curse of Macbeth. <laughs> okay. Well, the curse of Macbeth is the theory that, as you probably know, Macbeth has a witch's has many witches seen it. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. One year, I had a kid say, "I thought that came from the Mary Kate and Ashley Halloween special." (laughs) I was like, "No, Shakespeare wrote it." But anyway, so there are many there are many witches scenes in Macbeth. Of course, the crux of the play is that the witches, you know, give uh, a prophecy to Macbeth that he forces to come true and and disaster ensues and so anyway um so i one years and years and years ago we used to have at my school a shakespeare festival and classes were uh incur- english classes were encouraged to put on a skit uh, sh- uh, from one of the shakespeare plays uh, maybe just an act or a scene, you know, depending on how much time they wanted to put into it. And so one of my cla- one of my senior classes that year, and again, this is like 30 years ago, one of my senior classes decided they wanted to put on Macbeth, and they wanted to put on the witch's scene of Macbeth. Now, the curse of Macbeth is the theory that somewhere in the witch's scene is an actual witch's curse. Now, Macbeth was written, Shakespeare wrote during the reigns of Queen Elizabeth I and James I. And as you might remember from your history classes, as you might remember from your history classes, James I had been James VI of Scotland. And when Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, died, she hadn't had any children. And so there was a crisis. Who's going to be the reigning monarch in England? So they offered James VI of Scotland the job and said, do you want to come down to England? He was a cousin. Do you want to come down to England and become the King of England also and unify the thrones? And James said, okay, I'm your man. And so James came down and James VI of Scotland became James I of England, same guy. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because, <laughs> wait a minute, wait for it. I'm telling you this because he was an expert or a purported expert in demonology and witchcraft. And he wrote a tract on demonology and witchcraft. And so... That was like his hobby. Yes. Okay. Um, and so this, Macbeth was written during his reign. And the theory is that Shakespeare put an actual witch's curse in there to, to um, impress the king. Mm. So, if you, if you Google the curse of Macbeth, you will find that 
Uh, it's like if you say the if you say the name of the play inside in the, theater. the theater, it's supposed to bring didn't, bad luck to the company. What happened to didn't Grammar? Yes, my my mother, your grandmother, was at a production of Macbeth at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City, when during intermission, like she, what year would have this? Oh, I've got it in my file folder downstairs because I found it in the New York Times, the article all about it. Um, it was sometime in the 80s, late 80s maybe. Okay. Um, so she was in the lobby during intermission with probably almost everybody else, and the vocal coach, <clears throat> the vocal coach for the production fell from the balcony, the th- probably, who knows, committed suicide, I don't know, but he, he <laughs> fell from the balcony and died. Um, and they had, they basically had to say everyone go home, here's your money back, you know, plays over. That is Um, terrifying. But, but there's all these, if you Google the, the Curse of Macbeth, there are all these really bizarre things that have happened to companies of Macbeth when they've put it on. So the, the idea is you don't say the name of the play when you're in the theater. If you're in the play, you say, you call it the Scottish play. So I had my, (laughs) back to my story, back to my story. So I had my seniors decide they wanted to put it on. So my girls that were playing the three witches went all out. And they dressed like punk rock witches, and they got, uh, what do you call that, dry ice what in a cauldron. This? this was also in the 80s, uh, maybe okay. the late 80s, around Can the same you, time, the late What 80s. year did you start teaching? 84. Okay. Um, so this was around the late 80s. Did you teach 1984? I did. In I did. I did. I did. Okay, so, yeah, and and... Ever since 1984, I've had to explain to students that it's supposed to be the future because the yeah. date makes it sound like it's supposed to be in the past. Right. But anyway, so so anyway, they decided to put this on. The morning of our production, the morning of the Shakespeare Festival at school, there was a knock at my door, my classroom door. I went to the door, and the, the boy who was playing Macbeth, who was a very healthy athlete, was covered in splotches, hives, his whole body was covered in hives, his face, his hands, his arms. And he looked up and he said, this is all your fault. <laughs> he said, I've never had hives before in my entire life. I don't know what's going on. The play went on. As far as I know, we never got hives again. But he was pretty much convinced <laughs> that it was because of the curse of Macbeth. So anyway, I would always tell my students, look, we're not putting on that's the production. Funny. We're just doing it in the classroom. We're reading it out loud. If you're too nervous to be one of the readers, that's fine. But you should be familiar with the curse of Macbeth. So anyway, that was second quarter. Then third quarter, <laughs> oh moving into the mo- modern era, we started with novels. Because as you probably know, the novel is a fairly modern art form or literary form. So they had lots of choices third quarter. So third quarter, their choices were the first round, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or Crime and Punishment. And I would give them background information on the Brontes. And I would give them background information on Dostoevsky. And then... And, and I would let them sort of sign out a book, and then within a week, if they want to switch books, they can switch books. And we did, you know, reading sort of pods in, in class. And then the second round uh, was Frankenstein or Dracula or The Picture of Dorian Gray. And again, I gave them background notes, lecture notes. I like to lecture. I was old school, so I always gave lecture notes for background for information. So I, lecture, I gave them background notes on Mary Shelley and on Oscar Wilde and on Bram Stoker and Dracula. And I would always say to the kids, even if you're not reading this particular book, 
listen to the note you don't have to take notes but listen to the lecture so that you have more information because there's no downside to having information and who knows maybe someday you'll find yourself on jeopardy but also you could at some point decide you want to read one of these other books and so the more background you have on the author and on the time period or whatever the better off you are which does remind me i i gave context notes all along so like i told you in the beginning first quarter it was on theology for the different religions and some background information mm -hmm. on them and then second quarter it was sort of philosophy with aristotle and and some history also and then third quarter is primarily about the authors and history and then fourth quarter these are seniors mind you they had no attention span fourth quarter I was, okay i was gonna say because t to me all of this sounds fascinating but um i imagine for some it would be hard to keep up they knew that i mean i like i, I don't know. know they knew what they were signing up for like but I'll it tell feels you, I'll, like if if you're excited about it which right. it sounds like most people who took it were excited right. about it that it wouldn't be an issue but like it's just a, or maybe I just haven't been in a class in a while. I don't know, like but hold that it. thought because I will get okay, back okay. to that. So then fourth quarter, seniors didn't have much of an attention span. And there are so many authors I wanted to cover in the modern era that I decided to do it through short stories. So I, would, I did a whole lot of short stories that would cover both the late 19th and early 20th, well, throughout the 20th century. I guess so, I also forget that this is over the span of a year. Like yes, college yes, is just it's a not semester. a semester. It's not right, a semester. Right, right. So okay. I did short stories by James Joyce, Luigi Pirandello, Anton Chekhov, Doris Lessing, Leo Tolstoy, Guy de Maupassant, Albert Camus, so we could talk about existentialism. I also gave them background notes on existentialism. Uh, Kafka, and I talked about what the term Kafka S means. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Chino Achebe, uh, Naguib Mahfouz, Egyptian, um, Hussein, Chinese, and Atakagawa, uh, who's Japanese. And um, now, in keeping with what you just asked me, this course died four years ago, three years ago. It's the last time I taught it. It died three years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. This class does not exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is because all the kids that wanted to sign up for it were told to take AP instead. Mm. So it's so funny. How they were told because back. they don't get a quality point for this class, mm -hmm. and they don't get an AP AP on their transcript. Mm. And do you know I had kids over the years? The last few years, the course was in existence, and I was also teaching AP because mm -hmm. each in my school, each teacher teaches five sections. So I was at some point I was teaching world lit and AP mm -hmm. and some sophomores. So the last years I was teaching this course, I had some kids who took both AP and world lit because they like to read and they took AP so to be on their transcript but they had an elective course yeah. opening so they took world lit for their elective and do you know every one of those kids told me they learned more in world lit I'm, I'm not surprised because in AP I would say the kids would ask me what's the difference and I'd say the difference is in AP in world lit we go into a forest and we say wow Look at that tree, look at that tree, look at the canopy, look at the forest canopy, look at those ferns down there, isn't that cool? In AP, we go up to one tree and we look at the bark and focus on the bark. Like, it's a deeper yeah. dive into fewer pieces of literature. Right. And this is more of an overview. Mm -hmm. um, I, I told the kids, I took my junior year of college in England and we had six weeks off at, at Christmas time for, because it was a trimester system. We had six weeks off at Christmas time and six weeks off at Easter time in the spring. And so at Christmas time, I had a friend who was also taking her junior year of college in England. Um, I had a friend who decided to go to one village 
in Germany and spend the entire six weeks in that village and really get to know the village and study German, I decided I was going to get a Eurorail pass and go all over the place. So during those six weeks, I crossed the English Channel on a ferry, which was the only way to do it in those days, and I went to France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, West Germany, East Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and Austria. And that's the difference between AP and World Lit. Mm. Because World Lit was more like my approach, where we did a little bit of this, a little bit of that, sort of, you know, in like highlights. Yeah. And then you know what you want to go back to. I mean, I guess it, I guess it makes sense for the fact that it is supposed to be a college course. Like, in college, you technically do take a deeper dive into... Right, right. ...your major, but... Um, but it, I don't, I don't know that that's necessary. When you're that's, 16. Yeah, exactly. Or, so you know what? Some schools are now offering AP courses in ninth I, grade. Oh god. And so my question is, how many eighth graders do you know that are ready well, to go to you, college? Well, also like, why are you specializing well, when you don't know anything? It's a lot of pressure for a ninth grader, I think. But it feels like pressure. you're specializing, right. To a degree. Right. So I loved teaching that course, and I have had a number of adult friends who said, "Oh, you should offer that class." you know, for a night course somewhere, you know, contact the, the local community I mean, you're college. Full of energy. I would not I just love teaching that class. I and don't I see why it's not. Fascinating. Um okay, so I did this kind of backwards, but I feel like now is the good time to uh actually acknowledge the fact that you had no intention of becoming a teacher. True. Prior to any of this. <laughs> so um do you want to speak a little to that? Sure. Um, and I always used to tell my students this story, too, because I think it's important for kids to know that sometime life just happens, mm -hmm. and you wind up in a career that you hadn't planned and wind up loving it. Um, I think more often than not. Actually. Yeah, and, so, and a lot of times kids think they have to know when they're 15 or 16 or 17 exactly where they're going to be when they're 35. So, okay, so to back up a little bit, um, my grandfather, who came over from Ireland, he was born in 1875, uh, went to Cornell Law School and became a lawyer. And he died long before I was born, but his two sons, my uncles, both became lawyers. And my uncle Eddie, of whom I was very fond, um, was a lawyer in New York City. And when I, and a number of my first cousins, all of whom are older than I am, became lawyers. And so when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do when I was still in high school, my uncle Eddie said to me, you know, why don't you go to college and major in English. That was an easy sell because I love to read and I love to write. He said, go to college and major in English and then go to law school because English is the best major for law school because you learn to read quickly and write well. And I thought, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a path I can see myself following. So I, did, I went to college. You like to talk. Sorry? You like to talk a lot. And I like to talk. And so, uh, and I like to talk to people. So, and so I went to college, I majored in English with every intention of going to law school. Um, but simultaneously, I was volunteering at this summer camp where you have volunteered for the last, what, 10 years? Camp Fatima of New Jersey, mm -hmm. which is a one-to-one -one camp for special needs. special needs kids. They used to say severely handicapped, but special needs kids. Um, that's a one-week sleepaway camp. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you know, each kid gets a counselor and there's a lot of support staff, etc. And it's a great, great, great place. Nobody's paid. Nobody pays to go. It's been going on since the it's late 60s. It's been going 60s, on 50 years. 50 years, right. Which is 
And it's a fabulous, fabulous place. One of the happiest places I've ever been. In Lebanon, New Jersey. Yes. Camp Fatima of New Jersey. Check it out. You're from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. And so I started going to my uh, very dear friend of mine from high school, Chris Costa, um, was going to Fatima because her older sister, Janet, had gone to Seton Hall and majored in special ed. And uh, so the Costas introduced me to Camp Fatima. And so I started volunteering at Fatima one week during the summer. And I really fell in love with working with these kids. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go into special ed or something. Maybe I don't want to go to law school. Maybe I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the kids that first year I was at Fatima, which was in 77, one of the kids was uh, deaf. And he had very severe cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair. But he could understand sign language. He couldn't manipulate his hands himself, but he could understand sign. So I started learning sign language. So uh, I went to college in D.C. and... Uh, that following September, when, in co- when I was in college, I started taking sign language courses at Gallaudet, thinking I wanted to learn sign language. So I wound up taking like 20-some-odd credits in sign language, maybe more, I can't remember, but a lot of credits. I, I took sort of all the courses they had in sign language. and Like in addition to your bachelor's? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just, it was like at night. Like it was like, it was yeah, a night thing. Aside from... I would take the bus down to Gallaudet and take courses at night. So I wasn't getting credit for it in my college, but I was taking these courses. Mm -hmm. And I was still an English major. So I I was sort of torn here because I was also meeting a lot of guys from Georgetown who were, and dating some of them, who were uh, in law school. And they weren't getting jobs because there was a glut at that point of of people graduating from law school. And what year is this? I graduated from college in 81, so it would have been the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And they were tending bars in D.C. with law degrees because they couldn't get jobs. And I thought, I don't even know what kind of law I want to practice, you know? I mean, I sort of had an existential crisis here. I majored in English. I loved working with these kids. I knew sign language. I wasn't really convinced I wanted to go to law school because I wasn't sure what kind of law I would want to practice anyway. And I couldn't imagine myself defending somebody that I knew was guilty. And so... (laughs) Oh my gosh, I, I didn't <laughs> Not that know what I wanted to do. Law, I know, but, but yeah. in my mind at that point. And so... You didn't know the industry. I didn't know the industry. Now, my, my uncle who was a corporate lawyer, and I didn't think I wanted to do that either. And so so anyway, um, I went, to, went back to Gallaudet where I was taking the sign language courses and said, look, I was an English major. I want, I think, to work with deaf kids, I think maybe. And they said, oh, that's lovely, honey. Oh, meanwhile, I had also substitute taught there at the elementary school there they said that's lovely but you don't have any education courses at all go get some education courses and then come back and talk to us so at this point I was living in Arlington and I thought and I was working for the National Park Service at Robert E. Lee's home in Civil War costume giving tours it was a full-time job and and I love doing that too but you know it was the National Park Service my days off were Wednesday Thursday or Tuesday Wednesday or something like that and I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life so I applied to UVA and William and Mary for to to get certified as a teacher. Mm-hmm. At this point, I was just going to get certification, and I got into both. But William and Mary was way friendlier when I went down for an interview, and they offered me money. And they also said UVA was kind of dismissive. They were like, "There's their sort of attitude is you got in. What more do you want?" <laughs> but William and Mary was like, "Oh yes, we can do this. We can do that. You know, do you need some financial support?" And then they also said, look, since you're coming here to get certified and take certification courses, why don't you stay for an extra semester, however long it takes, and get a master's degree? Because then you're more marketable. 
So I thought, oh, okay, sounds like a good idea. So I decided, I went down there, I moved down to Williamsburg, I quit my job with the Park Service, I got my, you know, financial support, uh, scholarship money from them, and, and I started, I took the undergraduate courses I needed, I did my student teaching, and I got my master's degree, I did my master's thesis, I had to do a, a thesis on, I, I chose the effect of television viewing on cognitive development, because this is of course before computers and before the internet, and uh, while I was down there, Arlington County uh, went down to recruit and interview graduate students. So I thought, well, I should really go on an interview to see what it's like, you know? Interview practice. Interview practice. So I went on this interview, and they hired me. <laughs> so I thought, well, I need a job. So my idea was that I would teach for Arlington Public Schools for maybe three or four years, and then, you know, save up some money, and then I would maybe, tr you know, change yeah. over okay. to going back to Gallaudet and working with deaf kids or something like that and because who knows I wasn't planning on being a high school English teacher but then they hired me and I loved it right. I just loved it and there 36 years time flies when you're having fun you and the football coach right yeah Bruce Hansen um he's still there he's, he's been there 40 years I think Right, you guys were, you yeah, started we were the, together. We were, no, no, he's there longer. He's there 40 years, I yeah. think. Well, yeah. So I mean, he's, he and I were the longest in the county, I think, yeah. In the classroom, anyway, as classroom teachers. So, yeah, and I bailed for the pandemic. Sad, sad, sad. I miss the kids. But everybody misses the kids because now they're mm -hmm. teaching virtually, right now anyway, on the computer, and there's talk about going back. Everybody's nervous. They want the vaccine first, mm -hmm. and I don't blame them. So anyway, yes, so that's my story. That's how I wound up becoming a high school English teacher. Well, thank you. Uh, I do have one more question that I um, want to ask because I feel like over the years you have had so many stories, so many stories, and I don't even know how you would pick your favorite, but, um, you know, we were talking about how much students are struggling these days, and I was just wondering if you could tell a story or two um, about your students that has restored your faith in education? Like, oh even if it's I, about, like, where they came from or, like, what they tried to do in school or after. Okay, or, so you know, I, I do have some advice for anybody teaching, going into teaching or struggling with being in the classroom now. Um, I think that one thing I learned in all those decades of teaching is that the more you know about a student, the more their behaviors, um, the, either academic success or not, or maybe classroom management issues or whatever, the more all of that becomes, uh, under, one can understand it, okay? It becomes explicable. Um, because I've, I, getting to know a student is challenging because high school classes change you know they and so high school teachers you, kind of. well high school teachers teach typically 150 to 165 kids a day yeah so getting to know individual students is very challenging because of the time constraints right. and then after school a lot of them rush off to sports or after school jobs or whatever and and they don't have the freedom of movement that earlier generations had to be able to hang out with you unnecessarily in your classroom during lunch and you might not even have the same lunch period so getting to know students on an individual basis which is crucial i think um, is increasingly challenging. But the more one knows a student, the more 
one a lot of students need that connection to, to succeed academically and a lot of teachers actually need that connection to understand why a student might not be succeeding academically so having said that um, I had a student for instance here's here's a, I will give you both a horrific example and a heartwarming one okay. I had a student years and years ago with horrific? I'm starting with horrific okay. I had a student years and years ago who and this is decades ago who was a real problem in class. He was disruptive in class. Um, all of his teachers were having problems with him. And he was disrespectful, disruptive to the classroom environment, to the other students, uh, was not compliant at all with regards to any kind of, you know, appropriate classroom behavior, besides the fact that he was obviously also, also failing all of his classes. And so everybody was frustrated with him. His guidance counselor was frustrated. Everybody was frustrated. So eventually we had a meeting with the parent, the, the mom, it was, she was a single parent, and, and the student, and the guidance counselor. And during this meeting, and I will never forget this, the mother turned to the boy and said to him, I wish you had never been born. Oh my God. And then turned to us and said, you know, he was the product of a rape. Um, he shouldn't, I should never even have had him. And he, his face... It made, his, his facial expression made it clear to all of us that he had heard this story many times before. And so all of a sudden, everything became clear to me. That is why horrible. Exactly. And my frustration shifted, obviously, from the child to the parent. Well, what kind of support does, did the I think have? Child Protective Services got involved in that case um, because, obviously, there was emotional abuse going on. But the more one knows, the more the behavior becomes... The, the basis of the behavior becomes obvious. So that was one example. And I have other examples as well, but that was the most horrific. Um, right. Unfortunately, I have other examples as well of, of horrific sort of parent background. Relations. Yes, parent relations. Okay, but, but that was the most horrific. But the, the school it does have a support system for those kinds of Well, we're, we're all re we're required to well, report both physical and emotional, obvious emotional abuse, and so yes. Um, so then there's that. But then the, the, the heartwarming story is I had a student a number it's of years hard, ago. you got to come back from that. I am coming <laughs> It back better be that. really heartwarming. It is heartwarming. I had a student a number of years ago who um, really struggled with, um, she, she was very slow in her speech patterns and very slow in processing information. Oh. And uh, uh, what I learned very early on in the school year, because she had, uh, I can't remember if it was an, it, it was a 504, I think. It wasn't an IEP. The difference between an IEP and a 504, an IEP oh is individualized. Oh, my God. We need to do, like, a part two because I feel I like we didn't go. Okay. okay. There's so much we have to talk about. Yeah. The IEP is an individualized education plan for learning differences and needs, and that the IEP gives a student a, a special ed sort of monitor who will help the student throughout the day and whatever. Um, the 504... Uh, has a lower bar for eligibility and does not give the student an individual special ed monitor, but nevertheless gives the student some accommodations for, for one reason or another. And this particular reason was that this student had been in a horrific car accident when she was 10. Her parents were, and she were coming back from a family vacation or something in the Carolinas, 
and they were on the highway and she was asleep in the back seat and a truck rear-ended them going like 65 miles an hour and the car was pulverized and she was thrown from the car and wound up in the median strip and okay. had like every bone in her body broken at and 10. at 10 and was in a coma for like six months or something and oh had traumatic brain injury and when she came out of the coma and i might be exaggerating for six months it may have been less than that but she was in a coma for a long period of time and when she came any coma feels right significant. when she came out of the coma she had to relearn wow. how to walk and talk and eat and everything and so here i had her in high school and she came up to me one day and she said i finally finished and i said finished what and she said reading the dictionary she had reread, she had read, I shouldn't even say reread, she had read the dictionary to reteach herself words and expand her own vocabulary. She went on to be very successful in college and graduate school because I kept in touch with her for a number of years and would go speak at conferences for uh, people with traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. But she was the hardest working kid I ever had. Oh. Right. So I think that was you ask about you know reaffirming my faith or in in this humanity and yeah. in students yes i i'm sure i mean there I, and many I'm sure that there are many overcome, stories. oh yeah there are yeah. many students who have overcome a lot um and in fact i years ago i saw this video of a nun in ireland actually speaking to a student body of a school in ireland and i don't know where the school was this is years ago but she was giving out awards and before she started the award ceremony, she said, there should be an award for those of you who struggle to get out of bed and come here this morning. Because she said, some of you are, are battling challenges we aren't even aware of. And I want to give those of you who are in situations that make your day-to-day -day life difficult credit for getting out of bed and coming here this morning. And I think that's a really important thing to remember, that we don't know the backstories of all these kids. Yeah, yeah and I mean, some people will, um, you know, maybe call that participation award and just, you know, hike up your bootstraps and, like, like get over yourself kind of attitude. But I think that circles back to the uh, empathy point. Exactly, earlier. Aristotle. Let's Aristotle. go back to Aristotle. Okay, so yeah, I, I want to close. Ask, okay, you have. I want to close. You have with, Catcher in the Rye. I have Catcher in the Rye. I want to close. I, I want to close this interview with a um, Wait, a nod wanna... to a support support holding Caulfield. Yes. Okay. Do you want to do that first, or do you want to plug your tutoring company? Because I do want to give you that opportunity. Oh. Okay. Well. When I retired, I decided that I, I wanted to continue having a connection with kids. And it doesn't have to be kids, obviously, but that was my first thought. And so I did start a tutoring company. And it's uh, my website is www.rightawaymoco. And rightaway is W-R-I-T-E-A-W-A-Y. And MoCo, and MoCo is Montgomery, Montgomery County, M-O-C-O. But it's... It's not Montgomery County exclusive. It is not Montgomery County exclusive. This is Montgomery County, Maryland, by the way. It's not exclusive to Montgomery County, especially now that we're virtual, because right now I'm tutoring virtually. So I'm tutoring. Tutoring? Tutoring. Tutoring. I said tutoring. Okay. I'm tutoring virtually. So I have a student in Baltimore and a student in Northern Virginia and a student in Montgomery County. And so, uh, you know, after the pandemic, obviously, I could also tutor uh, and this in is person. Whether but, it's, you know, assistance in the classroom itself or 
um, college application assistance yes. because the you college did teach. essays. I did college essays for thirty six years. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And, um, and also it could be to... college level writing. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anything yeah. an English teacher could help you with or a teacher of the humanities could help you with. And yeah. study study skills. Yeah, right. I just wanted to give that, yes. um, Thank you. that opportunity. Okay, so back to Catcher in the Rye. Okay. Yes, the contact information is on my website. So back to Catcher in the Rye. Um, this ties into that whole, the whole empathy. empathy thing. I've had even English teachers, horror upon horrors, um, disparage Holden Caulfield over the years. I've heard this, and I've heard, I've read this, uh, you know, online and in the Washington Post, people saying, oh, Holden Caulfield is just a whiny brat. And oh my goodness, Holden Caulfield is so much more. And well, he's not a whiny brat at all. And so I taught Catcher in the Rye for years and years and years to sophomores. And after we talked about it extensively, the kids typically wound up loving this book. So let me say this about, about Holden Caulfield. For those of you who have not read Catcher in the Rye or maybe read it decades ago, um, and sort of gave it a cursory read. I want to point out in chapter five, chapter five of Catching the Rye gives you background as to why Holden is so distrusting of everyone and has shut down emotionally. And if you missed this paragraph, then you missed really understanding Holden Caulfield. So I'm going to read this paragraph with Fiona's permission. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. So the background for the paragraph is Holden's high school roommate remember he's in a boarding school and he's flunking pretty much all of his classes his high school roommate has to write an essay and has has holden to write it for him and holden can't think of what to write the essay about so he decides to write the essay about his little brother's baseball mitt um he says here i'm going to skip a couple sentences but i'm going to start by saying i wrote about my brother Allie's baseball mitt it was a very descriptive subject it really was my brother Allie had this left-handed fielder's mitt he was left-handed the thing about it that was descriptive, though, was that he had poems written all over the fingers and in the pocket and everywhere, in green ink. He wrote them on it so they'd have something to read when he was in the field and nobody was up to bat. He's dead now. He got leukemia and died when we were up in Maine on July 18, 1946. You'd have liked him. He was two years younger than I was, but he was about 50 times as intelligent. He was terrifically intelligent. His teachers were always writing letters to my mother, telling them what a pleasure it was having a boy like Allie in their class. And they weren't just shooting the crap. They really meant it. But it wasn't just that he was the most intelligent member of the family. He was also the nicest in lots of ways. He never got mad at anybody. People with red hair are supposed to get mad very easily, but Allie never did. And he had very red hair. I'll tell you what kind of red hair he had. I started playing golf when I was only 10 years old. I remember once, the summer I was around 12, teeing off and all, and having a hunch that if I turned around all of a sudden, I'd see Allie. So I did. And sure enough, he was sitting on his bike outside the fence. There was this fence that went all around the course, and he was sitting there, about 150 yards behind me, watching me tee off. That's the kind of red hair he had. God, he was a nice kid, though. He used to laugh so hard at something he thought of at the dinner table that he just about fell off his chair. I was only 13, and they were going to have me psychoanalyzed and all because I broke all the windows in the garage. I don't blame them. I really don't. I slept in the garage the night he died, and I broke all the goddamn windows with my fist, just for the hell of it. I even tried to break all the windows on the station wagon we had that summer, but my hand was already broken and everything by that time, and I couldn't do it. It was a very stupid thing to do, I'll admit it, but I hardly didn't even know I was doing it, and you didn't know Allie. My hand still hurts once in a while when it rains and all, and I can't make a real fist anymore, not a tight one, I mean. But outside of that, I don't care much. I mean, 
I'm not going to be a goddamn surgeon or violinist or anything anyway. All right, so I would always have the kids, when we read Catcher in the Rye, list the negative thoughts Holden has and the positive things he does. Because he does an awful lot of really nice things in the book for people. And then I, and I also say to the kids, what kind of shape do you think you'd be in if your beloved little brother died of leukemia and your parents, who couldn't talk about it, because he, he says in the book he can't talk to his parents about Allie because his mother cries. Nobody will talk to you about it, but they send you off to different boarding schools. Do you think you would be getting good grades and be happy and be hanging out with your friends? And, and we talk about grief and how people deal differently with grief and how grief can be isolating and especially the, the death of a child can cause family members to become emotionally isolated. And, and then that his, his wealth, he's obviously comes from a wealthy family in New York because he talks about how his apartment has doormen um, and he's going to these fancy prep schools, boarding schools, that his wealth and his social status doesn't save him. That, that grief is universal and that the death of a loved one um, causes, that, that one's social, socioeconomic status d is not impacted, um, does not impact the, the, the sense of the depth of grief one might feel. And, and anybody who says, I'm, I'm grasping for straws here, look at the title of the novel. The title of the novel is The Catcher in the Rye. And why is that the title? That's the title because his little sister Phoebe, whom he loves dearly, asks him what he wants to first she asks him you don't she says to him you don't like anybody who do you like anyway and he says I like Allie and she says Allie's dead and then she says what do you want to do and he tells her he wants to be a catcher in the rye that he wants to be able to stand at the edge of a field of rye at the edge of a cliff and catch children who are playing before they fall off the edge of the cliff and that's the title of the book he wants to save children and he he can't, couldn't obviously save his little brother. So what he wants to do in life is save children. And how much he loves the, the merry-go-round and loves watching Phoebe go on the merry-go-round because it goes around and around and around and around and it reminds him of childhood. And so I just think it's, it's a book that's rich with lessons about living mm -hmm. and, and the emotional impact of loss. And, and that, once like, we talk about that, resonates. it resonates. Yeah. It resonates with all the kids. And yeah. it doesn't matter their socioeconomic or ethnic or uh, religious background. Um, they get that. And so, you know, I, I just feel that I have to defend Holden Caulfield That's wherever fair. and whenever I can. <laughs> okay. Um, I will also uh, ask you for a list, a, a book list. A reading list, yeah, like of recommendations of, you know, maybe your favorites and then maybe ones that you've taught that students loved. You know, I can post it on my Instagram okay. page and sure. Um, or I also love to teaching Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. I taught Song of Solomon to the seniors. I loved in AP twelve. I love teaching Song of Solomon. And may, well, then maybe put like an asterisk next to ones. That you think require conversation, because I know that Song Tony Solomon Morrison too. requires yes. conversation. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but that would be great. Right. Well, thank you. I do think we need to do part two to cover, and this is just so I am held accountable. I want to cover five hundred four's IEPs, mm -hmm. parents, um, the different 
well, okay, teaching films in a literature course and why that was important to you and um, some of the background stories of like where your students came from because I feel like Arlington uh, like immigrant it, kids. It, I had, yeah. Right. I had it, a number of, right. When I first started teaching, I had a number of Vietnamese kids because yeah. it was not long after the Vietnam War and Cambodian kids and even mm-hmm. some Laotian kids. Um, I and just then think that they have really interesting stories and, right. that you've told me. So yes. I'd love to go into that. Um, but as far as this episode goes, I, I feel like this was really great. So um, thank you again for doing okay. this. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and I was joined today by my mom, Francesca Winch. To find out more about this episode and more, check out my Instagram page at Thoughtful Intentions Podcast. Thanks. Bye.